if you're gonna be a Baptist, be a good one. That phrase will always rattle around in my head. I'll always remember that. Uh, my professor in Bible college said that countless times, countless times when I was in his introduction to Baptist life class. Um, that phrase really struck me because I think at that point I was a Baptist by birth, but I wasn't really interested in being a good one, right? Uh, I was like, well, you know, I grew up Baptist and uh, that's what I'm comfortable with. and I'm mostly Baptist, so I guess I'll be Baptist, but I'm not going to be happy about it, right? I'm not going to like it. Well, uh, it made a lot of sense to me that I was like, well, if I'm going to be a Baptist, I guess I'd rather be a good Baptist than a bad Baptist, right? <laughs> well, right at the center, right at the heart of what it means to be a Baptist is to understand and practice congregationalism. Uh, congregationalism is right at the heart of Baptist theology, right? I mean, so you can be like a congregational church and not be a Baptist church, but I don't think you can be a Baptist church and not be congregational. Um, as we learned in the last episode, uh, congregationalism is basically uh, the... Uh, way of organizing a church where the congregation has the final authority um, in that church. So uh, this week we are going to dive more into that in this episode of Church Basics. So uh, we began our first two episodes with understanding what the church is. And last week we began to answer the question, uh, who leads the church? And this week, we're going to go further, deeper into the idea of congregationalism so that we can get a better perspective and appreciation for uh, the kind of church government that, that dominates our church, right, um, as a Baptist church. So I, I'm going to go ahead and let you know, uh, this week, um, I am kind of slinging it loose, like I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here. Um, in the previous three episodes. I, I've written everything out, you know, and uh, been really professional with all that. And I just frankly just do not have the time for that this week. Uh, so I'm going to just be going through this. However it goes is how it goes. And frankly, I'm only doing it in one take. And so if it uh, if I say something really stupid, then we will all be able to laugh about it together. Uh, but that's just a fair warning to you. All right. Anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and give you an overview for this episode as we talk about congregationalism. Uh, we're going to begin by talking about the biblical and theological underpinnings of congregationalism. And I believe that's going to take most of our time. Uh, when we talk about congregationalism, um, we do, we, we pursue congregationalism, not because it's especially effective or it's especially trendy or um, anything like that. We pursue it because it fits to, into what we believe to be the best understanding of uh, what scripture has called the church to be and do. And so we believe with scripture as our final authority over our the life of our church, 
that uh, congregational congregationalism is the kind of government that fits it best. And along with that, you know, uh, the theology that we hold as Baptists, the, the really big picture theology, uh, also fits with with congregationalism as well. So. And that biblical theological underpinning, we're going to talk about regenerate church membership, which we already have. Uh, we'll go over that again. Um, we're going to talk about the priesthood of all believers and the lordship of Christ. All right, so we'll transition from there to talking about characteristics of congregationalism, the things that make a church distinctly congregational in its practice and its, its makeup. And there we're going to talk about local church autonomy. Uh, congregational rule and the maintenance of a regenerate church membership. So it is my dear pleasure and hope that you will listen along today as we explore uh, a topic near and dear to the heart of all Baptists who want to be good ones, congregationalism. biblical and theological underpinnings of congregationalism that makes it sound a lot more complicated than what it is really we are just going to be talking about um, the reason why we practice congregationalism right why from scripture uh, do we choose congregationalism rather than presbyterianism or episcopalianism or you know one of the other forms of church government that we've talked about um, and so here I've got basically three doctrines that are core to what Baptists believe that help us to arrive at a practice of congregationalism. All right. And as I said, that's regenerate church membership, the priesthood of all believers and the lordship of Christ. Um, so we'll start with the first of those regenerate church membership. All right. Uh, so just a reminder about what regenerate church membership is, um, it you could just break it down, you know, one word at a time. Regenerate, uh, meaning made new, made alive. Uh, we would say born again. Uh, so you have that. Uh, the church membership obviously is a participation in the local church. So when you add all that up, basically, it, all it means is that the people who are members of a church should be born again true believers in Jesus Christ. All right, so this, if you don't get anything else uh, from from this, you know, podcast and uh, over these few weeks, I need you to understand that this is uh, essential to what we believe uh, about our church, right? That every person who is part of our church should be a genuine, true Christian, born again. Uh, this actually is what many people consider to be like the Baptist distinctive belief, like that um, whoever is, is in a local church should be, to the best of their knowledge, a true born again, like come to the point of salvation by faith in Christ Christian. Um, so kind of help us understand that and, and why that's significant to getting to a place of congregationalism where the congregation is, is the final authority and the congregation as a whole makes decisions for the church. Uh, you kind of have to understand the people of God in the Old Testament versus the people of God in the New Testament. 
So we believe that there is, is a lot of continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament. Um, you know, both are God's special, elect, uh, divinely chosen people. They are um, people who uh, comprise a whole nation that's meant to worship God in spirit and in truth. But there's also some elements between the people of God uh, in the Old Testament defined by the nation of Israel and the people of God um, in the New Testament defined by their faith in Christ, uh, the church. Right, so there, there's an element of discontinuity there. There's an element where these two things, these two groups of people, are different. So in the Old Testament, you have uh, true, you know, saints before Christ, those um, who who are truly, um, who are truly, uh, you know, saved, truly will be in the presence of God, will be in the eternal, final people of God at the last day. You have those people. But they are mixed in the same representative people of God uh, as those who are who are not, you know, renewed and, uh, and those who will not be, you know, in the final people of God, those who are not true believers. So uh, n- you have saints and you have uh, I don't this is this is why I type stuff out. You have saints and you have the not saints, you know, and they're they're all mixed together in the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And so they're signified, they're shown to be the people of God by outward participation in covenant rituals, uh, covenant rites like uh, circumcision uh, by, um, by by the Old Testament sacrificial system, these kind of things. People are uh, shown to be true uh, men of Israel and women of Israel by their participation in those things. All right, so transition. Uh, you come to Christ in, in, uh, in the New Testament, and all of those who believe on him for salvation are renewed inwardly. They are given new lives in Christ. They are endowed with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes to dwell all who be- believe in Christ, as we've seen in Acts. And so um, the change here is that the people now uh, have have an inward change and in that all people who are part of the big C here, Church of Christ, are people who uh, who have been born again, who have been made new in the image of Christ. All right. And so, uh, in other words, the New Testament church is different from Old Testament Israel in this. The New Testament church should be only those who are born again. So a congregation should be, should be in theory, made up of people who uh, have professed faith in Christ and who have been made new in him. And so they uh, are better able um, to rule and to govern than those uh, who are not in Christ. And a minimum that there's some uncertainty whether those people are in Christ. All right. So you have regenerate church membership. You have a similar, a similar doctrine, the priesthood of all believers. Now, this doctrine, the priesthood of all believers, is another Baptist distinctive. It's closely related to regenerate church membership. So, regenerate church membership says all church members should be saved. The priesthood of all believers says that all who are saved have direct access to Christ without need of an intervening leader. So 
The priesthood of all believers basically is the doctrine that since we have been uh, made new in Jesus, since we have been given new hearts, we've been given renewed minds in Jesus, um, there is no need for an intermediary between us and Christ uh, because Christ stands directly between his people and God. And so because of that, um, Christians are able to uh, decide matters of faith for themselves. Like when you look in the Old Testament, when you look in the Old Testament to understand uh, how the people of God related to God, there was a definite and strong need for an intermediary presence, right? You had prophets who would proclaim God's word, um, who would help the people to know God's will. You would have kings to rule over God's people, to provide direction for them, to provide protection for them. Uh, and then you would have priests, most importantly, who would intervene between the people and God, who would provide sacrifices daily on behalf of the people and who would, um, who, who would provide an access to the Lord. Well, in Christ, in Christ, we believe that all of those offices have been filled. And so we stand directly, all of us, all of Christ's disciples gain the benefit of that. We do not need a human intermediary between us and Christ because Christ has fulfilled all of the Old Testament office on our behalf. So he acts as our prophet, priest, and king. We have no need of an intermediary. So with Christ um, fulfilling all of those offices and all of his people standing directly uh, under him and receiving the benefits of that office, um, there is no need for a special office, like a, a, an office that would separate the general people of God from the presence of Christ himself. Uh, and so we believe, uh, based on that, that the best way to um, organize and rule a church is that all of those priests of Christ, all of those believers, those who are competent in matters of faith, are able to make decisions and to rule on behalf of a congregation. Um, everybody is able to come together and to uh, provide direction for the congregation, knowing that they are all made new under Christ together. All right, so we've talked about regenerate church membership, the priesthood of all believers, and last we have the lordship of Christ. Now this one, I think the lordship of Christ should be kind of self-evident. If we take regenerate church membership and priesthood of all believers, we should arrive pretty easily at the lordship of Christ over the church. Um, but basically, it's the doctrine that Christ is the one and only Lord of the church and that the church itself answers directly to Christ. In other words, there's not a person that uh, the church answers to above Christ. The church answers directly uh, to Christ. Here's a, here's a little quote from... Uh, a book um, or a chapter of the book uh, written by Stephen and Kirk Willem. He, being Christ, brought, yeah, excuse me, Christ bought the church with his blood. He builds it. He is its foundation, its cornerstone, and the chief shepherd over those who lead it. 
as a church's only mediator and Lord, Christ's direct headship precludes any human mediators between God and his redeemed people. So uh, Christ is directly our king and Lord as a church, and we do not have need of intervening leaders to bridge that gap between us and Christ. So a congregation uh, does not need a higher authority above it, does not need a governing authority um, to direct its affairs. And that's, that's how we see things playing out in the New Testament. Uh, if you look carefully through the New Testament, there's never an official governing body uh, that rules over local congregations, right? I mean, you have people exercising some apostolic authority um, over those churches, but uh, with with the passing of those apostles, um, the uh, direct rule of these churches seems to have ceased, right? And when you do uh, see uh, authority being appealed to in these churches, it's always direct authority from Christ. Like, so example, uh, Revelation 2 and 3 uh, describes the churches uh, that are being judged by Christ. Well, Christ gives a word directly to these churches. Uh, he doesn't give a word to a governing body over these local churches um, that control the affairs of these churches. No, he directly, directly addresses um, these churches themselves and the problems that are in them. In the same way, you think about uh, you think about the apostles and who they appealed to and their many letters that they would write. Um, so some of these letters were circular and they were meant to be passed around from congregation to congregation. But some of these letters had direct, uh, direct churches that they were addressed to, especially, uh, Paul's letters. Paul, um, Paul wrote directly to churches. When you see um, these churches being addressed, they are appealed to as a local body, right? There's never a greater governing body that appears in the pages of Scripture. And uh, so with us trying to be faithful to Scripture in that regard, we do not want to add a governing body where, uh, where the New Testament writers do not have a governing body beyond the local church. Um, as far as the biblical and theological underpinnings of congregationalism, um, at this point we're ready to transition now to talking about the characteristics that make up congregational churches. Okay, characteristics of congregationalism. What does a congregational church do to make it congregational, right? When can you look at a church and the way that it functions, the way that it uh, works out and say, huh, yeah, that's congregationalism. Uh, well, I am not going to pretend that I have like the perfect rubric, um, but I think there are a few things that you should see in any church that professes to be congregational. I've already listed them at the beginning of the podcast episode. We have local church autonomy, congregational rule, and maintenance of a regenerate church membership. 
All right, so the first of those things, uh, local church autonomy. And this is the doctrine that no church is subject to higher authorities in matters of faith or practice. Right, this is where congregationalism, I think, uh, is probably most distinct from, say, Episcopalianism and Presbyterianism, as we talked about in the last episode. Because a congregational church is its own separate, autonomous, individual entity, right? There's no, uh, there's nobody that a local church answers to, and if it's a congregational church, at least. So we, as Trace Crossing, uh, do not have a governing body that tells us, hey, this has to be your confession of faith, right? This is what you have to believe, um, we don't have anybody who tells us, hey, you need to be doing this ministry, right? We don't have anyone who sets our liturgy. We don't have anyone who tells us who to hire, who to fire. Uh, we don't have anyone to uh, direct us in, in matters of, of like um, dispute over doctrine or practice, right? So we do all of that stuff ourselves as a local church. Um, so... You may be asking at this point, may be curious, uh, well, we are part of the SBC, right? What about that good old SBC, um, the Southern Baptist Convention? What does it mean that we're a part of them if we're totally autonomous and totally individual? Um, well, it's actually really interesting. So the Southern Baptist Convention itself is, is not a governing body whatsoever. Uh, in fact, the Southern Baptist Convention only meets for like a few days a year when it's in session and when it's doing business. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is basically a way for churches to freely uh, participate with one another and to pull their resources together for the purpose of missions. So the Southern Baptist Convention uh, is meant to be a place where uh, Trace Crossing and you know other churches is in Tupelo, First Baptist, Harrisburg, uh, uh, other churches in the state um, and, and through the nation can pull their resources together, usually through a percentage of a budget um, that's given to the cooperative program, uh, basically just program where uh, churches cooperate <laughs> with one another, you know, through their giving of funds. And basically the SBC is, is like a church money middleman, right? It redirects those funds to ministry. So uh, it redirects money towards seminaries that uh, teach pastors. It redirects money to missionaries, um, which, is, which is the bulk of where um, Southern Baptist Convention uh, monies go. Like uh, most of what of every dollar that's given goes towards uh, the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. Um, and so anyway, uh, all that to say, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention does have a statement of faith, you know, and it can disbar a church from membership, but participation in the Southern Baptist Convention is totally voluntary. And a church is, is welcome to leave fellowship at any time. So uh, just go ahead and, and lighten us on that a little bit. Uh, all right, so we have local church autonomy, 
congregational church should be autonomous. It should focus. It should function uh, by itself. We also have congregational rule. Um, basically, this is the idea that the direction of the church is directed is is given you know uh, clarity by the congregation itself. Um, so just as we don't have a governing body that we answer to. Uh, we don't have even um, elected leaders in the church that uh, direct the church unilaterally. Uh, so in congregational rule, since everybody is, is a priest before the Lord, is competent to make decisions in matters of faith, is competent to understand and interpret the scriptures, is, is competent to be obedient to the Lordship of Christ, the church as a whole is able to govern and function uh, by itself. So, um, we have, uh, we, we do have leaders, but the ultimate authority and power in that congregation, uh, is, is in the, the people itself, the congregation, um, itself. So you can have, uh, different ways that, you know, congregational rule plays out. Like there, there's, there's more than one way that you could have congregational rule, um, in a congregational church. Um, and a good way to understand this might be kind of to use the analogy of like different forms of government, right? So uh, if you could think of congregationalism like a form of government, it would be democracy, you know, broadly, broadly speaking, democracy. But in democracy, you can have different kinds of democracy, right? You can have a direct democracy um, where every uh every decision is given to the citizens and the the citizens vote on like uh decisions themselves and and we even do that sometimes uh in in our form of government um we'll vote on specific matters like we we voted on uh medical marijuana in mississippi um in november but anyway uh direct democracy everybody every voting person votes on everything and in this kind of, uh, if we take this back to the church, a direct democracy like that would be kind of like the congregational rule where you have like business meetings galore, like as many business meetings as you can uh, imagine to talk about any number of things where everything is voted on, like everything is a matter of, of congregational approval, like, you know, the maybe the, the deacons or the pastor solicit... Uh, you know, quotes to get a new air conditioning system. All right. And so the congregation gets together in the business meeting and they, they vote on which of the uh, quotes to take for the air conditioning system. Right. That is, is like the very, that's as congregational as it gets. So um, that is kind of like a direct democracy, but you can also still have democracy and have a representative democracy where uh, the people don't vote on every issue, but they elect people who do vote on those issues, who do uh, deal with the issues uh, directly. And so in the same way, you can have uh, you can have a church where the congregation doesn't vote on very many matters or maybe in some cases any matters at all for the most part, but they do elect and hold accountable leaders who make those decisions. Uh, so, 
it's, it's kind of a spectrum there. You can have anything in between. You can have a situation where you, you know, elect elders who make every decision, or you can make uh, every decision yourself, but there's any combination in between. You can have like certain matters, like a, like budget decisions over like, $50,000 are subject to congregational approval, et cetera, et cetera. Any number of ways of playing it out. The important thing here, though, regardless, is that the power to decide which direction the church is going to go rests in the congregation uh, as a whole rather than its leaders, per se. All right, so we've talked about local church autonomy and congregational rule. Last thing is maintenance of a regenerate church membership, and we have already talked about this so i'm not going to go too deep into it but basically um if a church is congregational it should be made up as we said of christians believing uh regenerate church members only and the way that a church should be uh functioning is to help make sure that's happening right so there should be a, a membership screening to make sure that everybody who joins the church is a true believer um, that's why we don't baptize uh, infants who, who we believe are incapable of belief um, and are most certainly incapable of expressing that belief. Uh, so you, have, you need to have a membership screening process, make sure that the members are regenerate. You need to have a discipleship process uh, that continues to direct members in um, obedience to the authority of Christ and then continues uh, to help members live out their identity as true born-again Christians. And last of all, you need a church discipline process that is capable of... Um, when sadly uh, the times come on occasion uh, of removing those who uh, by their actions have demonstrated uh, a, um, a doubt, have um, cast in doubt their identity as a regenerate church member. Um, so basically that is... Uh, Basically, that's the practice of maintaining a regenerate church membership. There needs to be a, a process for all that. So put them all together. You got an autonomous individual church. You got a congregation that governs itself. And you've got a membership that is committed to being a regenerate church membership. And there you go. You've got a congregational church. All right. So it's about time to wrap this up. Uh, but one question before we go. One question. Where does trace fit into congregationalism? I don't want to be, uh, I, I know people have had like different ideas and opinions about where we stand as a congregational church, so I don't want to, uh, you know, stoke any different dissenting controversial ideas about that. Um, but we are in essence congregational, right? In the ways that matter most, um, for sure, we are an independent, autonomous Baptist church. So uh, we do not have a governing body that we answer to whatsoever. Uh, we also uh, seek to practice regenerate church membership uh, as best we can. We, we seek to maintain a, a church membership that is uh, wholly, truly born again uh, through our you know, membership process, our discipleship process, and church discipline when that uh, unfortunately is necessary. Um, so the matter obviously would be uh, congregational rule. 
Uh, I will say that if there, like we said earlier, there's a spectrum where you have um, different kinds of congregational rule. Trace is on one side of that, right? So Kate, Trace is very has a very strong uh, elder-led culture, if not fully elder-ruled. So, um, but I will leave you to the specifics of how all that works out, uh, because my challenge to you uh, this week is to read our bylaws. Uh, I'm I'm serious. I'm going to upload our bylaws. I want you to be familiar with uh, the process of how government works at Trace, like our, our church government, and how uh, how elders um, become elders, how. Uh, deacons become well actually deacons are not on the bylaws anyway how elders become elders um, what uh, you know we uh, believe as a church is is essential to our government and and functioning Um, and I want you to be familiar with those processes I think that will help you to be a better church member Uh, that will help us to be better elders uh, as you hold us to the standards that we have there in those bylaws Um, So with that said, uh, I appreciate you listening and I hope you have a great day. God bless.